I remember growing up, the uh, times that thrilled me just about as much as anything is when my dad thought about uh, taking me with him somewhere where he was going to go or spending special time. And especially when I could tell that he had made some special effort, because he was a very busy man, he traveled a lot, and, uh, and I remember on a number of occasions he'd say, I've worked it out, let's spend Friday going up to Little Molas Lake up near Silverton, Silverton, Colorado, let's go do some trout fishing. And boy, I'm telling you, I was all about it. But I tell you, as much as I enjoyed the trout fishing, I just loved being with Dad. Uh, Dad would just talk, and boy, uh, would I learn. Or he would say, I'm going on a trip to Denver, and I've worked it out, and you're going to come with me. And I, you can miss school. Love that. That was great. Uh, but I just loved being with my dad, where I could tell he wanted to spend time with me. At least that's what I thought he did. You know, I don't know if he was just doing his, his dad duty, but uh, it certainly... It did something for me. Well, I got good news for you. Our Heavenly Father wants to spend time with you. And uh, He wants you to be with Him. And that's, of course, uh, what the whole term I am speaks of as He reveals Himself to us and wants to interact with us. And this morning we looked at the glorious truth that He is the Word, the communication of God to us and now we're going to look at the picture of all of this in the tabernacle. If you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 40. It's the last chapter of the book of Exodus. We're going to just finish our overview of this book here uh, tonight or this afternoon. And uh, just look at some of the aspects of it to try to give uh, sort of a final set of thoughts to our study. We have seen in the book of Exodus the deliverance of God, the revelation of God Himself to His people, the making of a leader in Moses, and how God prepared him, and then how God gave everything that Israel needed to know to be a nation there at Mount Sinai. And the thing that touches me so much about what we read of at Mount Sinai is that he brought the people right up to the edge of that mount because he wanted them to be near him. He even brought the, the leadership up into the mount and they were able to see some of his glory. Uh, so you see the heart of God uh, to communicate and to be with us. But what's interesting, and we have not taken the time except for the message on the high priests and his garments, but 40% of the book of Exodus is all about the instructions for uh, the tabernacle and then the implementation of it as we're going to see here in the 40th chapter. If we went through that, it would take a college course to go through the ins and outs of the tabernacle. In fact, as you unfold the, the different facets of the, the different instructions that were given and then what each of the objects mean, and we're just barely going to touch on that here today, you just see unfolded the wonderful message of Jesus Christ and His plan for us. He did everything that was needed. If anyone of faith would see it, they would have what they need to understand what God was doing for their salvation. You know, it's very interesting. You find throughout the Old Testament 
always a remnant of godly believers that really understood. In fact, when you read what they said, it's like they were a New Testament Christian. Right now we're looking at Daniel in our Bible reading for the church, if you're following that, and it's always stirring to me to see the depth of the maturity of understanding that Daniel had. And then, of course, you get to the time of Christ, and one of the things that uh, is such an encouragement in that dark day, remember it had been four centuries. Just imagine going back four centuries from uh, our time now. That's early America, for sure. That's 400 years they had not heard from God. And now you have the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. But at that time, there were real believers that understood much. Anna, Simeon, Joseph and Mary, Elizabeth, Zechariah, and others. And they understood it because they studied the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is very thorough in the explanation of the coming Messiah. And if they understood the sacrificial system, they would understand the need for the substitutionary death of a substitute for them. It was all there. And uh, so for us as New Testament believers looking back, my, what a wonderful reinforcement as we see how the whole Word of God uh, comes together for us. And so let's begin here uh, looking at uh, uh, this chapter. In chapter 35, you find the people giving. We talked about that before for the uh, temple, I'm sorry, the tabernacle, and uh, and now we are going to see this tabernacle come together so that the presence of God could be with his people. You remember how Moses interceded, and we went through that in detail in Exodus chapter uh, 32, 33, 34. And let me just read again verse 14 of chapter 33, uh, when Moses had been interceding, crying out to God for his presence to be with him. And he said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are on, upon the face of the earth. So you have this interaction between Moses and Jehovah God. And, and so what was the key issue here with Moses? What was he so fervent about? Well, he knew the very heart of God was for God to have full fellowship with his people. And if God was not with them, if his presence was not there, it wasn't even worth going up or having the victories that God had promised. And one of the saddest uh, scriptures that I have, I have a deep sadness every time I read it, and that's found in the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, there we have the departure. Now today we're going to look at the coming of the Shekinah glory to the Holy of Holies. Here you have in the vision of Ezekiel being brought to, uh, to Jerusalem after the captivity, and there you have the departure of the glory of God from the, from the temple. You read in Ezekiel 10.3, Now the cherubim stood on the right side of the house when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. 
Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the cloud was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory, like we're going to see today in the tabernacle. But we read in verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And they went out. The wheels also were beside them. And everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. Then verse 23, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, stood upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city, and it was gone. That's the greatest tragedy that ever happened to Israel. Now let me just say, Israel had another temple, the Zerubbabel temple. We don't know if the glory came back then. You have the Herodian temple. Was the Shekinah glory there? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, if a temple is built in Jerusalem, as is prophesied, uh, when the Antichrist allows them to build it, or if it's even built before that, there will be no Shekinah glory in that temple either. But there will be eventually. <clears throat> and the glory of the Lord will return. So this matter of the presence of God is a very amazing reality. And this is the most precious thing we have, God with us, as we talked about this morning. And um, so let me just read a few of the verses here. I'm not going to cover this entire chapter, but let me get it into context. Chapter 40, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, that's the new year of Israel, shalt thou set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. And thou shalt put therein the ark of the testimony, and cover the ark with the veil. And thou shalt bring in the table, and set in order the things that are to be set up upon it. And thou shalt bring in the candlestick, and light the lamps thereof. And thou shalt set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony, and put the hanging of the door to the tabernacle. And thou shalt set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. And thou shalt set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar, and shalt put water therein. And thou shalt set up the court round about, and hang up the hanging at the court gate." So we have here simply all the instructions he had been given, and you find detailed instructions on the materials uh, and the colors and everything about every facet of the tent, from the outer covering to the inner covering of the tent part of the holy place and the holy of holies, to how the fence around was to be constructed, how the the brazen altar was to be instructed and all the other pieces of furniture, but now they were to be placed in their proper uh, order. And, uh, and so this is what is happening here. But I want to just make a practical note. Uh, starting in verse 9, we see the tabernacle was set apart for divine usage. This was not uh, supposed to be a common area. This was not something that was to be taken lightly. This was the picture of the coming Messiah. And remember the high priest's clothes? Remember the very materials that were used for the different parts of the high priest's clothing? And the exact colors were all uh, the, the types of materials and colors that were used throughout 
the tabernacle in the making of it. So you have that beautiful picture of the high priest which speaks of our great high priest Jesus, Jesus Christ and it is reflected throughout the entire uh, tabernacle. And if you look with me at verse 9, and thou shalt take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is therein and shalt hallow it and all the vessels thereof and it shall be holy. And thou shalt anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all his vessels and sanctify the altar and it shall be an altar most holy. And thou shalt anoint the laver and his foot and sanctify it. And thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons into the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and wash them with water. And thou shalt put Aaron the whole, on Aaron, <coughs> upon Aaron the holy garments and anoint him and sanctify him that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt bring his sons and clothe them with coats. And thou shalt anoint them as thou didst anoint their father that they may minister unto me in the priest's office, for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus did Moses, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. Now, I think this is very significant here that um, Moses did this exactly like God had told him to do it. <clears throat> now, the reason for this is that this was to be a set-apart, sanctified example, illustration of what Christ was going to do and why He would come. Hebrews 9.23 says, It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so you can see the pattern there was the tabernacle, but, um, uh, but we, of course, it's all fulfilled in Christ. But you see the importance here of even this material, tent, fence, altars, laver, uh, candlestick, all of it was sanctified, set apart. And um, every part was to be sanctified. And, uh, and it's such a picture for us of our, um, uh, just the importance in our lives of uh, the fact that we now are, t uh, for me to live as Christ, the Holy Spirit is in us. And I could preach an entire message on the absolute necessity of sanctification of every part. Every part of that tabernacle was set apart, purified for pure divine usage. You know, if we would get a hold of this, it would change our lives. Did you know that I'm and you, I and you, we are all God's? The only purpose we have in life is divine usage. That's, a, that's an amazing thought. I mean, we are to be uh, completely consecrated to Him, but we don't think that way. We give God part of our time. We give God part of our life. Uh, we think of what we can do for God. But uh, we are now a, we are a holy priesthood. Uh, we are to be a, a living sacrifice, as Romans 12.1, we so often quote that, but that is a very 
strong terminology, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And so therefore, uh, just like the Lord was extremely, extremely concerned when Israel began to start polluting the tabernacle, especially the temple, that was one of the main reasons that God took Israel out of the land and caused them to go through so much suffering because they took lightly uh, the, uh, the temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be sons and daughters, saith the Lord. We need to sanctify ourselves. We need to allow God to help us understand we are just as important as the tabernacle was then. Our lives now are to be, we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Second Corinthians 7, 1, having these promises... Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, let's take a moment now and let's look at the tabernacle that was ordered according uh, to uh, God's Word here. And so I'm going to have them put up a, a couple of pictures just to give you an idea of what this looked like. There you see the um, people of Israel encamped. In fact, this picture doesn't even begin to show the vast nature of having two million people encamped in four quarters, uh, three tribes apiece around the tabernacle. But it gives you uh, a sense there of the size of the tabernacle and uh, how that you had, you had the tent which covered the holy place and the holy of holies and then you had the burnt offering and the laver out in the courtyard there where the people could come to offer, have the priest offer sacrifices. We'll go to the next one. And here you have an inside picture of the um, uh, whole, holy place and the holy of holies. Obviously the veil was, would cover the entire area there. Uh, you had the golden candlestick on the north side. You had the uh, the table of showbread on the uh, south, I'm sorry, yeah, on the south side, and then you had the altar of incense there right next to uh, the holy place. And then you can see the Ark of the Covenant where the glory of God would reside there behind the veil. And that's a pretty good idea of what that looked like. And by the way, uh, it initially, I'm sure, was extremely beautiful. And remember, all the materials were made under the supervision of the Holy Spirit Himself. But you've got to realize things were burning in there. And sacrifices were made and incense was going up. I wonder, you know, you wonder what it looked like after a period of time. By the time you get to the time of Samuel. And I'm going to let them go to the next uh, one here and we'll... Can you see that well enough? Yeah, hopefully... Yeah, put your glasses on. Maybe you can uh, see the wording there. Again, I'm not going into any detailed um, aspect here because it is too big of a project to do that. But I just want to get a, give us a little bit 
of understanding here, starting in verse 17. Uh, and it came to pass that Moses, as verse 16 said, he did everything God commanded him. Everything was important for that pattern. He was fully obedient. And uh, so they, they put the tabernacle up and they fastened everything together. When you study the previous chapters about the silver sockets and, and uh, the gold that was used and all, it's just amazing. And verse 19, and he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent above it as the Lord commanded Moses. And, uh, and he put the testimony into the ark and set the staves on the ark and put the mercy seat up above the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the covering and covered the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded him. And then he put the table and so forth. So you see him taking each of the things that were mentioned in the first part of chapter 40 and putting them in their places um, there uh, in, the, um, in the tabernacle. Now, now did the tabernacle, once they put it up, was it put up for good? Well, it was temporary, wasn't it? They had to take it down carefully in an order, put it together. Um, all of you that work on the Christmas set know a little bit about that. <laughs> uh, nothing as important as this, obviously. Uh, but uh, so that whenever the cloudy pillar would go, as the last verse talks about here in this chapter, they would have to move everything, close down, and then and do it back. And they were very careful about how they did it. So let me just give you some things here that just gives us just a, a bit of an understanding of this. Um, the, there were three sections. There was the outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies. And, um, and there was a fence uh, constructed uh, around it. It measured 150 feet in length, 70 feet wide, and seven and a half feet high, the fence did. Uh, in the center of the fence was a tent, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. And uh, you have it sectioned off between the holy place and the holy of holies. Um, the tent was made of 48 upright boards and was covered by four kinds of cloths. Three of these were animal skins, and the fourth was a fine linen. And um, the colors involved were white, blue, purple, and scarlet, as you get a little bit of an idea there. Now, just to give you um, a little bit of an insight into the worth of this, the various uh, materials used, um, there were 3,140 pounds of gold. Uh, and today, that would be a nice little cache of uh, um, gold, wouldn't it? And silver, 9,575 pounds of uh, silver. And of bronze, 7,540 pounds. And then just multitudes of animal skins, acacia wood, olive oil, spices, and stones. And it took approximately six months to construct uh, the tabernacle. And so let's just take a moment and look at the furniture of the tabernacle. And I'm telling you, there are some wonderful pictures here, and I cannot even begin to get started in this, but I want to just draw specifically two things. One thing, the basic purpose. Number two, uh, how it was fulfilled in Christ. 
first of all, the key, what would you say, other than the tent itself, what is the main focal point of the tabernacle area? Be the brazen altar, wouldn't it? And um, the brazen altar uh, was the place where the sacrifices occurred. And uh, when you entered the tabernacle from the east, it was uh, um, approximately seven and a half feet high. I'm sorry, seven and a half feet wide and three feet high. There was a great midway between the top and the bottom. A horn was on each corner to help hold the animal sacrifices which were offered at the altar. And this was the place in which uh, you have the picture here of uh, Jesus Christ uh, being uh, the need for the sacrifice, for the blood sacrifice. Now let me just say, folks, that's a picture of how bad we are. Going up from that altar with smoke continually because the sins of the people had to be dealt with. Bronze is a picture of the judgment of God. And so as you think of the brazen altar, it describes Jesus Christ, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. And you know what's so interesting to me? You would think that would be solid bronze because you got fire on it all the time. But what else was it made of? Anybody remember? Wood, acacia wood. And uh, to me, that's a beautiful picture of the judgment of God and the fact that Jesus Christ died on the wooden cross for us and that he identifies with the weakness of man and the strength of Almighty God. Lots and lots of pictures are there. Then you had the brazen or bronze laver, and uh, that's a brass basin which was filled with water. It rested on a pedestal covered by mirrors. It was used by the priest for actual and ceremonial cleansing of both hands and feet. And so you can see that there. I'm going to look at this a little closer right there. As you're heading up to the tent, you have the brazen altar, and you can see yourself in it which shows you that you need what? Cleansing. Uh, it's rather easy to understand. Um, sometimes we need a mirror in the morning to realize we are not ready to go out in public, okay? Uh, and uh, so uh, um, that's not totally the idea. But the point is that there is um, the need for sanct sanctified service. Jesus Christ was completely and uh, completely perfect. And when he was our high priest and the Lamb of God, there was no defilement so that he could indeed be our intercessor. But the priests had to cleanse themselves before they could offer sacrifices. And there are many other things there. But uh, you look at that, and that would speak of the fact that Jesus describes himself as the water of life. And then you go on to the lampstand. Now we enter into the actual uh, tent itself. Could you go back to the previous uh, picture of the, there you go. You see the lampstand there with the uh, seven uh, lights there on it. It's one of the most ornate objects in the tabernacle. It was made of pure gold. 
and consisted of an upright shaft and uh, which three branches extended upward in pairs. And, uh, and then you have the center one there. Uh, they were trimmed every morning and evening and were never to be extinguished um, all at one time. The lamp had to be regularly supplied with pure olive oil. The entire lamp required 107 pounds of gold. And it was, tr by tradition, it's not directly mentioned in Scripture, was five feet high and three and a half feet wide. That's pretty big there in that tent area. And it rested on the south side there of the first room. And um, you have the lamps uh, stand, and of course you, you have divinity seven, and you have the fact that uh, Jesus Christ, he said, I am the light of the world. And when we see Jesus now, as uh, revealed in Revelation 1, where is he? He's actually with the flaming torches of his churches. Seven churches were pictured. And, uh, and so the, it speaks of his glory. It speaks of his identification with us. God in his glory identifying with mankind that he himself was going to redeem to himself. More again than just that as far as meaning. Then there's the altar of incense. You see that um, uh, I, I mentioned I missed the table of showbread there on the uh, northern side of the of the there, and it was made of acacia wood covered with gold, and there were twelve cakes of bread, one for each tribe of Israel. Isn't that something? Right there in the presence of God, all twelve were represent. What did uh, what did the high priest have right on the center of his heart? 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. That just shows you the nearness and the dearness, uh, dear, uh, the way God loves us and how he holds us to his heart. And, um, and so um, they, the bread was to be renewed each week and uh, it was uh, on the inside there and definitely showing that God was... Uh, was himself through the sacrifices identifying with Israel. And then you have the altar of incense. And you notice where that's located. That's located right at the entrance to the Holy of Holies. And um, it was just a foot and a half square by three feet. It was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and it was symbolic of prayer. Sweet spices were burned on the table each morning and evening. Each one, uh, each, and then once a year, blood was put on that when you had the Day of Atonement. Now, I think that's beautiful. It really touched me when I was studying this. Where is prayer located? Right there at the Holy of Holies. Right. And where do we see incense coming up in the book of Revelation? The incense of the prayers of the saints goes right to the throne, the manifestation of the glory of God. Folks, make no mistake about it. Prayer is a big deal. Right there, just look at that. That shows you, front and center, how important prayer is to God. And uh, that's how we get into the presence of God by prayer. And then finally, the Ark of the Covenant that you see inside there, it, re 
It was like a cedar chest, approximately four feet long and two feet high. And it contained uh, several objects. Of course, you have the cherubim over, over it, just beautiful. Uh, you have the uh, two stones upon which were the Ten Commandments. You had also placed in there uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, budding uh, uh, rod of Aaron, and you had the manna placed in there. And uh, so it represented uh, several different facets of God's relationship with the people. And this is where the glory of the Lord was behind the veil here. And that there was a manifestation of it, and the people knew when to move and what to do. It was, it was clear to them that the glory of the Lord was there. Once a year, the high priest, under very strict uh, guidelines, would go in and make an atonement on the Day of Atonement for the entire nation of Israel. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus Christ was our sacrifice. He identified with His people and the whole world. And He uh, offered up Himself and He made the atonement for the sins of the whole world. Just beautiful pictures that we could have there. This uh, gives us an idea of the glory of God and yet the incarnation of Jesus Christ And one of the most glorious moments in all of history was after Jesus cried out, it is finished, what happened in the temple? Even though I don't believe the Shekinah glory was there, it was very symbolic. The finger of God ripped open the veil, saying that there is now access through the blood of Christ into the very presence of God. And uh, let me just say also about Christ, the table of showbread, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Um, The altar of incense, he made the great high priestly prayer of John 17. And then, of course, the uh, mercy, Jesus Christ uh, offered himself, and he is uh, our mercy seat. So on and on we could go with this beautiful picture. That's probably as many details as you need here uh, today, but uh, it is a beautiful picture and I would encourage you to study this sometime as we see what God has done. Let me just finish now though quickly uh, with the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God. Uh, Let's look at verse 34. After everything was put together, Moses finished his work in verse 33, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord was so manifest that they could not serve the Lord at that point. It was too much glory. That happened also when Solomon dedicated the temple and the fire of God came down upon the altar and the presence of God filled uh, the temple. They couldn't minister because of the glory of the Lord. You know, you read of men and women of God who fully surrendered and yielded themselves to the Lord and the love of God and the glory of God so filled their spirit they were just overwhelmed. Now, I'm always careful when I talk about this 
because we can look at a, a human experience. But folks, we are indwelt by the same glory. And if we were fully yielded like Moses was in obeying God in every area in laying out that tabernacle, um, we would experience times in which we couldn't even do much because the glory of the Lord was so real. And again, I don't want to try to get you to look for an experience. But there are times in which God is so real because you've really taken time to enter into His presence that you're not the same after those times. Those are sacred times. And I think many of you know what I'm talking about. And folks, uh, the same God that did this is in us. And we just need to understand, we must allow the Lord to manifest Himself in us and through us, for folks. Um, this was what this was for. The Gentiles were to come and to know that the glory of the Lord was there and they would see the sacrifice and they realized that this is not a pagan sacrifice. This is done in order. This is picturing something. And, and God would, uh, would work and the Jews were to know the 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 message of the coming Messiah and the, what God would do. And so we, we must, like Moses, allow him to lead in our lives. Well, thank the Lord for the pictures that he gave. Hundreds of years those sacrifices were made. Hundreds of years that tabernacle and temple stood. And then Jesus came. And so I, I trust that we'll realize that, as Paul said, don't forget, you're the temple of God. His temple you are. He is in us. What difference is that making?